Join us for a night of fine dining and entertainment as we announce the 2022 40 Under 40 winners. Running since 2002, the 40 Under 40 Awards program continues to recognise 40 of the state's leading entrepreneurs, innovators and future business leaders under the age of 40. Help us celebrate the exceptional young business achievers that are defining the future of our great state. Tickets available now at businessnews.com.au slash events. More details have emerged about the legal battle between Signet West and franchiser-turned-rival Colliers, with confirmation the action was prompted by the sale of the Baileys Motel. Signet West operated as Colliers International WA until earlier this year, when it severed ties with the multinational in favour of becoming an independent agency. But just eight weeks after parting ways, Signet West sued former employee Shane Isaacs, Colliers' new investment services manager, in a bid to retrieve confidential information it claimed was in his possession. During a hearing in the Supreme Court this morning, Signet West's lawyer Michael Bruce told the court Mr Isaacs allegedly sent confidential documents from his work computer to his personal email in November and December of last year before leaving the company on December 24. It was revealed Signet West was not aware the alleged transfer had occurred until an advertisement appeared in a local newspaper regarding the sale of the motel on February 23. But it's not not yet clear what it was about the advertisement that led Signet West to believe that Mr Isaacs was in possession of its confidential documents. 24 hours later, Signet West claims it sent a letter of demand to Mr Isaacs, insisting that the documents be returned. But according to Signet West, that demand went unanswered. The documents in question allegedly include instructions on how to conduct a marketing campaign and a spreadsheet for the calculation of fees and a property's market value. Following a 30-minute adjournment, the two parties submitted proposed orders for the delivery of information allegedly in Mr Isaacs' possession, as well as a sworn affidavit from Mr Isaacs that he had deleted the material, injunctive relief and an order precluding him or a third party from using the information. And the number of people hospitalised with COVID-19 has risen overnight as WA's new COVID cases climbed by 5,005. WA Health reported 92 people with COVID were currently in hospital, an increase from yesterday's figure of 8 However, the number of patients in ICU remains the same as yesterday, with three people currently receiving intensive care. Today's figures take the total number of active cases in WA to 20,788. And a proposal for a $220 million redevelopment at the Ocean Beach Hotel site in Cottesloe has been released for public comment today. Owner Stan Quinlivan is proposing a 12-storey apartment block, including residential apartments, short-term hotel accommodation, a tavern or bar, restaurants, retail and commercial. The development is expected to provide about 200 apartments, a 121-room hotel and 11 food and beverage outlets. The Quinlivan family has teamed up with David Hillam through Edge Visionary Living and Hillam Architects to lodge the proposal through the state government's State Development Assessment Unit pathway. 
And Salt Lake Potash's Lake Way project, which was predicted to be one of the first producing potash assets in the state before its collapse last year, has been put on the market by receivers. Receivers Cordamentha, in conjunction with Macquarie Capital, informed the market this morning that they had started the sale process and were seeking expressions of interest for the Salt of Potash outfit. Salt Lake went into receivership last year after the aspirant struggled to repay creditors and raise funds needed to continue commissioning its Goldfields flag at the time, the business was understood to owe approximately $170 million to creditors, including the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and federal government-owned Clean Energy Finance Corporation. We'll be right back. We understand that business relies on being informed. That's why Business News is your most reliable source of news, industry insights and business connections. To stay fully informed, we encourage you to subscribe to our emails, flick through our magazine and visit businessnews.com.au for daily news updates. It's the best way to ensure you have the information you need to be future ready. Business News. More news, more insights, more connections. Some of my favourite episodes of our Close of Business, Matt, are when we have our own version of Crossfire and we find ourselves on different sides of the debate. And I anticipate that today we may find ourselves on the different side of a debate on wage increases for the aged care sector. Now, at present, the Health Services Union is seeking a 25% increase to the minimum wage for workers. Uh, pay increases were a key component of the Aged Care Royal Commission. And I note there was a report in nine entertainment papers late last month and it quoted Louise Briggs, who was one of the co-authors of the Commission's final report, as saying that the federal government should back the HSU's case to the FWC. Now, conditions in the aged care sector are very difficult at the moment. I think we can all accept that. There was a, a report from the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation out last month, which claimed that up to one in five aged care workers will leave the workforce in the next 12 months, which is a scary thought. However, in response to the possibility of a 25% minimum wage increase for the aged care sector, I note the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Western Australia, has argued this increase is actually unaffordable. Uh, I note as well that the Chamber's recent uh, economic outlook noted real wages would decrease until mid-2023, which is notably more bullish than the predictions from Treasury, which doesn't anticipate wages growth to overtake inflation until 12 months after that. Matt, what's your view on this issue? Thanks, Jordan. Uh, I think there's two important things. But the first thing that we need to say is, of course, aged care workers are doing a very valuable job, very important to society. And I hope there's some way that we can find to uh, reward them more or, or make their, their work easier. Um, I think there's two probably major concerns, though, that I have. Um, the first one is about the cost of this. Um, and this is a huge cost in an environment where aged care spending has increased a lot. And because of demographic change, in the next 10 to 20 years, it is going to increase even further. Um, and we need to come back to that in a moment. But as a second point, one of the things about economics is, one of the most important things about economics is really it's all about improving living standards. And increasing real wages is a massive part of that. Um, so any good economic policy should seek sustainable increases in real wages um, over the long term. The problem is when you mandate it through government policy, uh, what you actually get um, is a lot of problems. So I want, to give, I want to give you a contrast and a comparison. So when the mining boom was here in WA, um, industry, the construction industry, mining industry, wages went up quite a lot. And it was driven by the market. Um, and the 
good thing was, or the, the, the thing that made it easier for the mining companies to do that was, they had very high royalties coming in, sorry, they had very high revenue coming in from iron ore, for example. Um, so it made it easier for them to pay workers more. And because all that revenue was sort of coming in, um, it also meant that you could pay workers in, in um, that it sort of, it flows through the economy, right? You know, so that the construction worker on the mine site doing FIFO, if he's got more money in his pocket, he can go to the local cafe or whatever else and, and spend. And, and that leads to a flow on effect for wages there too. When you mandate it through government policy though, um, and what I'm seeing now is increasingly, this reminds me of a lot of historical examples of inflation, of times of high inflation, um, because if you give one uh, worthy group a mandated government pay rise to minimum wage, then what about the next ones? So aged care, very important. What about disability care and nurses? Our, our hospitals are struggling without enough nurses. Um, and so those are three sectors that share um, you know, a lot of similarities, and, and I understand that there's a bit of substitutability between, between the workforces, so there's that. Um, but then what about our teachers? There might be a teacher shortage, I've heard, uh, or at least the teachers' union claimed that. Um, what about the, the Western Power lads, the electrical trade union guys? They're out there on 39-degree days in bushfire zones or after a cyclone repairing power lines. They probably deserve a wage increase too. So once you start creating political pressure for wage increases, when you do it for one sector, you start creating political pressure for wage in increases in a whole bunch of other sectors. And all of a sudden, um, you know, a third or half the industries in the economy have a huge increase in wages. And this is literally, this is, this is what happens. Right? This is not like a slippery slope argument. This is precisely what happens throughout history when you do this. And what happens is um, it's inflationary. Costs go up for businesses. Prices go up for consumers, for customers, um, and in the end, right, vulnerable people are, are left worse off. Businesses are under pressure. The people who did have wage increases, well, inflation's now galloping away even higher. They've got to pay more for all their stuff too. Um, and the real wage impact over the medium term is, is not actually that substantial. And so I can, there's, there's, a, there's plenty of um, uh, Australian evidence on this in the 70s and 80s and all the rest of it. Uh, and elsewhere in the world too. Um, and so the danger is you start to create a massive inflationary pressure and then everybody is worse off, right? So what we need to think about in, in aged care is, gee, we've got a worker shortage. Um, and fair enough, if aged care companies want to start paying their workers more right now, they should do that. They don't need to rely on the government to mandate it. They can do that right now. But it's hard for them because they have um, low margins. Um, it's a tough industry. Uh, and so all of this means ultimately, and we're, I'm going to come back to this, um, this thought stream uh, in a moment, Jordan, after I let you fire back at me, crossfire style, um, but uh, all of this means we're going to need to start to think about new ways, really, to run the aged care sector, whether it be through, um, you know, being a bit more lenient about trainee, you know, university students who are already, you know, they do traineeships and they go out and work. Um, like nurses go out and work for periods in the in the industry. Maybe we need to be a bit more lenient about how that works and maybe pay them to do more hours, uh, make sure they're paid for it. Um, there could be a whole range of different ideas you might have in terms of home care or whatever else, particularly in, in healthcare, they, they say that more home care can actually reduce costs. So there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, but if we just try to mandate higher wages, we're going to get inflation. Jordan. I think wage increases cause significant heartburn for economists and businesses, but I am interested in talking about conciliatory approaches, and that's uh, approaches that acknowledge some of the, the economic arguments in favour of 
businesses increasing wages. I'm particularly interested in a situation in 2018 when South Australia, there was a Liberal state government elected uh, and opposition leader and former SDA official Peter Malinowskis backed increasing the payroll tax threshold from 600,000, which I believe was the lowest in the country, to one and a half million, which I believe is now one of the most competitive. Uh, and his reasoning was it was a means of preserving jobs and increasing employment for everyday South Australians. I note before that economist Salt Eslake has argued in favour of equalising payroll tax. That's instead of having concessions for small businesses, that's everyone pays a, a, a lower rate of payroll tax in an effect to encourage economic growth amongst big and medium-sized businesses. What do you make of these supply-side arguments for uh, increasing wages, for businesses stepping in and increasing wages as opposed to uh, government stepping in? Yep, that's absolutely what it's all about. Um, if you want to see sustainable wage increases, you need to basically make it easier for, for businesses to do business. Um, you need to, uh, lowering payroll tax is a great example of that. There's, there's a lot of other things that can be done. But, but ultimately, if you want it to be sustainable and not inflationary, it needs to be matched by a productivity increase. And that's hard in aged care because it's such a, it's an industry where, where the workforce is so important, right? It's not like mining where if you just get, you know, uh, a better truck or whatever else you can you can increase your productivity. It's hard in aged care um, because it's, because it's a service sector. So it's something we need to think about though as a society is what we can do to um, enable those wage increases without creating the pressure. I want to just also come back to the point I made earlier um, just about cost of this. So the government is a big funder of aged care and listeners might actually be surprised given some of the debate we hear in society at the moment. Um, this Coming financial year, so 2023, that's the one that starts in June, 27.5 billion uh, federal aged care spending. That's up 5 billion from last financial year. Um, overall aged care spending, if you include the pension and stuff, will be more than 80 billion next year. Very, very substantial. Um, and if you compare this to 10 years ago, overall assistance to the aged was 51 billion. And then funding for residential and, and community care, which is not exactly a like-for-like -like comparison, but it's hard over a long time because governments change and they change how they categorise things in the budget, was about 10 billion. So uh, my best estimate there is that, is that funding for the aged care industry has probably roughly more than doubled over about 10 years. Um, and the thing we need to be worried about is that our society is ageing. Um, people are living longer, um, and these are positive things that we should be happy about. But in terms of aged care, it's a worry because you may have heard um, a few years ago there was a, there was a number that about uh, 2.5 working people, there'll be about 2.5 working people for every person over the age of 65 in about a decade's time. That compares to like 5 to 1 or 6 to 1 a few decades ago. Um, so, I mean, imagine that, right? So, that, so aged care, the spending requirement, even if you don't do anything with wages, the spending requirement is going to go up by a lot. The healthcare costs as the economy age, as people in the economy age, is going to go up a lot, and then the aged care cost of, of paying, um, making sure people have decent pensions, is going to go up a lot too. So, we need to, to have this debate in the broader context of of what is a massive, possibly second to to maybe climate change. Um, an aging population is one of the great challenges we've got in the next decade or two. Um, and it's going to drive up costs and prices and we're not going to have the workforce available to do these things. So we need to start having good ideas as to how we can, um, how we can support the, the sector to, 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 to get more out of what it does, whether it be through technology or, or whatever else it might be. And one of those ways, as you've just said, is, 
this payroll tax reform. Um, the other one I always think of, I love the example of Artria here in WA, which does the, the AI for heart disease detection. So that's a healthcare example. Presumably there are people working on similar things in, in aged care. I think there are. Um, Ramsey Healthcare working on something in terms of fall detection and things like this. So these are things that we're going to need to think about. Um, and we're going to need to think about it quickly because uh, the pressure is growing substantially, which I think you highlighted at the start. Indeed, and I want to focus as well on the short-term pressures of, of COVID and obviously increasing deaths in uh, aged care settings. It, it's an interesting time for the Health Services Union to be arguing for this wage increase. It comes at a time of economic growth nationally, but at the same time there's this perceived crisis uh, in the healthcare system with, with increased sickness and increased illness. And one thing that we've spoken about a lot offline when not on this podcast and uh, a conversation I'd like to bring into this podcast is the value of industrial action or industrial disputes during times of perceived uh, crisis and conflict. And I'm thinking right now of South Australia, there's been some notable uh, industrial action or threatened industrial action taken by the Nurses and Teachers Union. Uh, in New South Wales, the Teachers Federation recently uh, took industrial action to, for increased wages and uh, uh, better conditions. And I believe the argument there was that, well, kids haven't been in school for however long. It's not going to make much difference if the teachers go on strike and people aren't going to be upset. Uh, and as well, we've seen here the Maritime Union of Australia took protective industrial action at Fremantle Port in uh, the middle of last year to seek improved conditions around rostering at the same time as there was supply chain disruptions. What do you make of the value of challenging some workplace settings in a time when people look around and they see a crisis? Uh, well, unions have a great role in our society. I was president of a union for a bit, a student union. And um, so I, I think that, um, you know, freedom of association is important and it's very important that workers have representation um, when they're bargaining. Uh, the thing that you've just got to be, that always concerns me with this stuff um, is that if a, if a union is simply seeking to extract more, uh, if they're simply seeking to redistribute away from other people in, in the economy, and I don't mean business leaders, I don't mean owners and, and wealthy people, because they're never actually the people that get hit. When we, when we have this, these debates about wage rise, about wage rises, it's not the owners, right? They'll just raise, raise their prices or whatever else. It's, it's everybody else. So um, we need to make sure that when we do these things, that we're, when we're increasing wages or asking to increase rate wages, we need to make sure that we do it in a way where we're not making things harder for the most vulnerable or for middle-class workers who are doing their own thing as well, um, because that's a, a battle we can never win if, if industries are just competing against each other for who can, for, for which union can get the highest pay rise. Um, so we need to do it in a way, as you said earlier, a conciliatory way where we, um, where the government can come up with, well, it doesn't even need to come up with ideas. There's a lot of them already available for what it can do to improve productivity and reform the economy. And it's not about having a battle of who can spend more in what industry, because there'll always be losers if that's the way we think of these things. The issue is how do we unlock more potential? Payroll tax, great example. Stamp duty, not necessarily related to this topic, but another example. Uh, use of technology and cutting the compliance version burden. I'm not an expert on aged care, but when I did spend time in that aforementioned student union, I found out there was this huge compliance, there's a huge compliance burden for universities. And ultimately, you've just got to think about the fact that academics are there, you know, to, to research and to teach, and they love it. And universities are there most of them are non-profits. They're there for the love of it. Um, and they want to make an impact. They want their research to make an impact. And so do we really need huge amounts of compliance burden? 
Same with, you know, we hear teachers have an increasing compliance burden. Nurses, we've heard recently, these are things that we've published in business news. Teachers, nurses, increasing compliance burden. Um, aged care workers, I can only presume, feel exactly the same, and it must be very stressful and pressurised. So what can we do to make sure that their lives are easier and they can spend more time with patients? Um, these are the types of things we need to be thinking about. So industrial action, uh, it frustrates people. Um, and I just worry also, as, as one more point, that... Um, so often industrial action is not actually really genuinely used, this might be controversial, to benefit the workers and the members. So often industrial action, it seems to me, is used so that people with political ambitions, and by the way, people in the Liberal Party, I'm sure, you know, it's the same thing, right? But people use industrial action so that people with political ambitions can, can pursue them. And I think there's a famous case some decades ago um, I'll be a little bit light on exactly what I say, but there's a famous case some decades ago of someone who pursued lots of industrial action um, on the basis that they wanted to build a political name for themselves, um, and it wasn't really interest in the interest of the workers. So that's something we need to be cautious about, Jordan. Well, if this conversation was worth nothing else, it was worth having it to have you express some mildly pro-union sentiments. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. Stay on top of the latest news stories that are impacting your business, industry or sector. The New Look Business News app gives subscribers breaking news alerts, access to e-editions, articles by category, as well as our advanced data and insights search function to find projects, people and companies. It's your mobile portal to the latest intelligence on commerce, politics and industry, wherever you are. Stay informed at critical times and download today. Visit businessnews.com.au slash app, download on the App Store, or get it on Google Play now. This podcast was brought to you by Optus Stadium. Now taking orders for your next breakfast or lunch meeting. If you like what you've heard, head to our Spotify page to like and subscribe. New episodes of At Close of Business are available every day in time for our afternoon wrap. I'm Jordan Murray. See you tomorrow.